welcome to the first collaboration between the ESVS podcasts and Audible Bleeding. I am Laurence Bertrand. And I am Ezra Schwartz, and we are thrilled to combine the teams and listeners of our respective podcasts. This is the first of a series of transatlantic debates comparing and contrasting American and European guidelines on the management of different aspects of vascular disease. Today's podcast is focused on the management of carotid artery disease. Both the SVS and the ESVS have recently released updated guidelines with new and improved sets of recommendations. In some areas, they strongly concur, giving physicians extra assurance in their day-to-day decision-making. However, there are some important differences too. Indeed, modern-day evidence-based medicine mandates a strong understanding of current local and international guidelines, and as physicians, we often rely heavily on them. But what to do when they differ? Representing the American perspective, we have with us Dr. Ali Aburama, a professor of surgery and the chief of vascular and endovascular surgery at West Virginia University, and a previous president of the Society of Vascular Surgery. Dr. Aburama is the corresponding author of the updated SVS guidelines on extracranial cerebrovascular disease, first published in June of 2021. Welcome, Dr. Aburama, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. And the West Virginia University have more than one campus, and we are at the Charson Area Medical Center. I'm very, very pleased to be a part of this proceeding. And representing the European perspective, we have the co-chair of the 2023 European Society of Vascular Surgery Guidelines, on the atherosclerotic, carotid, and vertebral artery disease, Dr. Barbara Rantner, a leading physician in the LMU Ludwig Maximilian University Hospital here in Munich. Welcome to the ESVS podcasts, and thank you for being with us today. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for having me in this interesting podcast. Dr. Raburama, the SVS guidelines outline five key questions, five points of focus. Was this based on gaps in the knowledge that were deemed particularly important, or were these points rather driven or directed by newly available evidence? It's an excellent point. When we looked to our guidelines in 2011, it was very impressive, large document, which quite many people felt was too much of details. And based on the guidelines of the clearinghouse of guidelines in the United States, we were told in the last few years, they do not recommend comprehensive large document like a textbook. They like any society to address three, four, no more than five clinical important issues, which supported by at least either level one evidence or very strong evidence, almost equivalent to level one evidence. And when the writing group met together multiple times, we debated that issue and it came out with the most important five clinical items that not only in the United States, but worldwide, they are still debated and controversial and have enough evidence to give us the chance to give recommendation, whether grade one, grade two, evidence A, B, C, and that's how these five items came to be. And because carotid disease have so many other aspects, we ended by putting a comprehensive implementation document as a companion to the five question of the clinical practice guidelines. And both were published in the same time. If clinician want to go beyond these five questions, is going to find them in the implementation document. And that's the rationale of doing it this way. Dr. Rentner, 
The ESVS carotid guidelines are comprehensive and structured similarly to a textbook. In this way, they are different from the American guidelines. What is the reasoning behind the ESVS guideline structure? The 2023 guideline is also an update of the former versions. So there was a 2009 and 2017 version. And the guideline covers all areas of carotid and vertebral artery disease. So that's the reason why the paper is very extensive. The prior guidelines left unanswered questions that were addressed accordingly in every next version. And with that, the updates got bigger and bigger. And the 2023 manuscript is now more than 100 pages long. So we are well aware that this might be too much for the updates in the future, since also the 2023 guideline contains more than 15 unanswered questions that should be addressed in 2027. And it could therefore easily happen that we also need to change our strategy and focus on key questions and relevant new evidence, as already said by Dr. Abu Rama, to have a comprehensive update of relevant new literature. Thank you for that initial overview. First, we will focus on symptomatic carotid disease. By symptomatic, both the ESVS and the SVS use the definition of any focal neurological symptoms compatible with previous transient ischemic attack or overt stroke within the past six months. Scoring is done using the modified Rankin scale, with mild being a score of 0 to 2 and severe equaling a score of 3 and up. The stenosis grades in both guidelines are scored using the NACID criteria, although interestingly, cutoff values for treatment indications are often similar but not identical. Let's start with one of the main recommendations on the American side. Dr. Raborama, if I may, the SVS recommendation number 2.1 reads... We recommend carotid endarterectomy over transfemoral carotid artery stenting in low and standard risk patients with above 50% symptomatic carotid artery stenosis, evidence grade 1A. Dr. Ratner, would you say that the European guidelines agree with this statement in general, as in the treatment for all symptomatic stenosis above 50%? Absolutely. There is still sufficient evidence to support carotid endarterectomy as first-line treatment technique in symptomatic patients. Especially when thinking about TCAR, this is a bit of a problem in Europe since this technology is not widespread and so it's not a real alternative to transfemoral cuss in Europe. That's the reason why ESVS guidelines did, for example, not mention the potential difference and superiority of TCAR in the 2023 guideline version. Dr. Rantner, the ESVS guidelines differentiate between a stenosis grade 50 to 70% and above 70%. Why is that? This is certainly an historical development. So the early publications of NASTED and ECST, for example, used that categorization to mild to moderate and high-grade stenosis and made the analysis accordingly. The classification amount to moderate and in contrast high grade is very common in Europe and therefore the SVS guidelines also stick to that classification among symptomatic patients. Dr. Raborama, is this different in the United States? Do you make no difference between above and below 70% stenosis or higher or lower grade symptomatic stenosis? Let me clarify what Dr. Ratner just indicated to you. The idea of above 50 and above 70 really did not come in relation to the question which we raised. And our question, as you know, raised, is CA 
comparable or better than transfemoral carotid stenting for patients with symptomatic disease. It did not say, is CA better than medical therapy? The NACET, which is almost 30 years ago, and the ECSC, which also almost 30 years ago, separate a 50 from 70 for simple reason. The 70% stenosis, when you compare endartractomy to medical therapy, the benefit was so clear at 18 months. Stroke rate of 9% versus 27%, three to one in favor of surgery. That's for medical therapy and not stenting. However, for 50%, it was only a benefit of a reduction from 22% to 15% at five years, not 18 months, five years. Therefore, the benefit of surgery was much superior for the above 70 in comparison to above 50. But the question in our guidelines is not a medical therapy. Is it CA versus stenting? And all coded randomized trial, when they compare stenting versus endartrectomy, they look to anything above 50%. Therefore, the answer is for above 50%. And for stenting, we don't look to 50 or 70 the ESVS guidelines also make space for symptomatic patients who have below 50% stenosis. Dr. Rantner, can you summarize the evidence and treatment recommendations for these patients? So the question how to deal with patients with symptomatic below 50% IC stenosis was one of the unanswered questions from the 2017 guideline. The evidence for these patients is, as you can imagine, quite low since they were not included in relevant randomized control trials. So the first-line therapy for these patients is certainly best medical therapy and ruling out other reasons for the stroke. And in the case of recurrent symptoms, despite best medical treatment, a multi-interdisciplinary decision needs to be taken to undergo carotid endaltrectomy or carotid ultrastensing for these patients. Wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Aburama, what do the SVS guidelines recommend for these patients? Actually, we touched that in the implementation document, the companion document, and we feel there's no any strong evidence to support intervention with our CA or stenting for anybody below 50%. However, Talking to Dr. Aburamo, who have done the surgery for over 40 years, I have done over probably a dozen and a half of people below 50% under special circumstances. It means you give them medical therapy, you get multidisciplinary unit. As Dr. Ratner suggested, they don't believe the TIA was connected to a cardiac origin, brain origin, or unknown, whatever it is. And they're still having a recurrent TIA, and the plaque look vulnerable, doesn't look normal, then I have done it, but you talk about almost one every two, three years. So in general, we do not recommend intervention for below 50%. Okay, thank you. Let's now analyze the differences regarding carotid stenting. Within the scope of symptomatic disease, the ESVS guidelines seem to have explored the indications for carotid artery stenting in greater depth 
than the SVS guidelines have? Is that a fair assessment, Dr. Randner? Yeah, in my mind, it's an absolutely fair and necessary assessment. So in symptomatic patients, we consider the age cut of 70 years for a potential treatment with carotid artery stenting, since all available randomized control trials clearly show that the paraprocedural risk of cause significantly increases in patients 70 years or older. And additionally, there are dedicated recommendations depending on the timing of treatment. So early revascularization should be performed with carotid endarterectomy. The SBS guideline recommends that. Cause needs to be delayed for at least seven days after symptom onset. And this is also covered by good randomized evidence from the large trials of the last years. Dr. Raburama, stenting in symptomatic patients is generally weakly supported within the American guidelines. Is that a correct interpretation? And why do you think that is? That's absolutely correct. And looking to our guidelines and looking to the meta-analysis done by Mayo Clinic from the Center of Evidence in Mayo Clinic, if you put the four randomized trials with 500 patients or more included, and these are the commonly quoted, whether the German space or the French EB3S or American, which is the CREST, or the international, the ICS, all of them, you put them together, the stroke risk in 30 days is reduced by almost one third. The relative reduction is 0.69. And after five years, the risk reduction is 0.79, which means whether 30 days or five years, if you look to stroke and death, there was no question that endarthrectomy was superior to stenting. However, if you look to stroke, death, and MMI, then it becomes almost a covenant. And as you don't do carotid intervention to prevent the heart attack, you do it to prevent the stroke and or death. And that's what the American way look at it, the reduction of stroke and death. So that's probably why there was more into more analysis in the European than us, because across the board, there was no comparison when you compare stroke and death in terms of superiority. On the other side also, we just felt if you look to the European, which actually digested it very much over the past year or so, Please forgive me, Dr. Radner, if I'm saying something wrong. The really stroke and death were somewhat inching towards better with the stenting only for the 65 years and younger, but around 65 is almost equal. And when you go to 70 and above, it becomes so superior to endarthrectomy. Then add to it the real world experience in America in multiple systemic review published not only by Journal of Vascular Surgery, but also by Cardiology Journal, showed it clearly in the real world, the stroke risk is two to three times perioperatively in comparison for stenting comparison with endarthectomy. Add to it data from the SVS Vascular Quality Initiative. Stroke rate is twice as much for stenting as endarthectomy. So because of which, we just felt it would be injustice to put these two as equivalent, regardless of what age of patients. And as it's not likely for us to see too many people 
below the age of 65 or 60. Most of the patient we're dealing with is above 65 and 70. But I agree with that. There is more coverage for stenting by our European colleague, which I admire and I respect greatly. You're absolutely right that the proportion of patients that really benefits from carotid artery stenting in the symptomatic patients is quite low. As you mentioned, how many patients are below the age of 70? How many patients should be treated with CAS with a delay of more than 7 or 14 days to make carotid artery stenting safe? So that the, the rational and the issue of carotid artery stenting in symptomatic patients is very difficult and should critically discuss. And we discussed this in the guideline group extensively. And the recommendation for carotid endotrectomy in symptomatic patients is a level 1A recommendation. And it's a 2B recommendation for carotid artery stenting as an alternative with all the given restrictions I mentioned of age and timing and end. So the group of patients that remains literally available for a reasonable stenting in the symptomatic period is very small. And so I fully agree on the American way of not making it too popular. Dr. Raburama, in your opinion, before writing the guidelines, was there already a discrepancy in the clinical practice between the USA and Europe that influenced this difference in style? I think somewhat, yes. There is an antony because if you go to the root of stenting, not only there are pioneers in Europe with carotid stenting, whether interventional radiologists or interventional cardiologists, but there was probably more jump on it in Europe, and they had probably don't have a restriction that the American specialists have here. Let me give an example. Up to now, if you do carotid stenting for symptomatic patients, they have to be high risk. Otherwise, if they are not part of trial accepted by your IRB, they will not be paid. Maybe there is more freedom in payment in Europe than in America when it comes to carotid stenting. For asymptomatic lesions today, 2023, the CMS, which is the center covering payment for all procedures for the Medicare population in America, which are the majority of the patients we deal with, will not reimburse doing any carotid stenting unless they are part of a trial, including doing the TCAR. They have the part of SVS, the QI initiative, and part of what you call TCAR surveillance project. And that continue for five years, after which CMS and various experts will sit down and decide, was it worth doing this during that five years? Then they will decide whether to liberalize the indication or not. So that might be a very critical point why in United States is somewhat still more restrictive than in Europe. I would like to hear Dr. Ratner's point of view in this regard. So the initiative to assess the quality of carotid intervention is fantastic in my mind. And it's very important to keep standards high also for complication documentation. And it's fantastic that the United States has such a potential database where also analysis can be drawn from. 
In Europe, we don't have this, unfortunately. So many different countries do their different quality initiatives. The Germans, for example, have a data set, but it's not connected to reimbursement. It's assessing a little bit now indications, but not into detail. And it's more about techniques. It's about type of anesthesia. It's about the use stents and so on. But there is not so much into indications. And absolutely, this does not influence the reimbursement. Before moving on, Dr. Rantner, transcarotid stenting, or TCAR, seems to overcome some of the disadvantages of transfemoral carotid stenting and is gathering promising data. Do you think TCAR will gain relevance in the future ESVS guidelines? So... In my personal opinion, TCAR is a very promising technique and certainly safer than transfemoral carotid artery stenting. Keeping in mind that about half of paraprocedural carotid artery stenting strokes are on the contralateral hemisphere, we meanwhile fully understood the danger of crossing a shaggy aortic arch with wires and catheters on the way to the carotid artery. Still, TCAR is extremely industry-dominated, and the use of this system in Europe is very limited. Although data from the United States and China are quite big, all information so far comes from registries and randomized trials are missing. So the combination of this very limited access to TCAR for many centers in Europe and the missing randomized evidence will make it certainly difficult and unlikely that TCAR will be recommended over transfemoral casts or even more over carotid endarterectomy in the European guidelines in the near future. Next, we'd like to move on to acute stroke patients. The SVS explicitly lists the following contraindications to revascularization. A Rankine scale above or equal to three, an infarction area more than 30% of the middle cerebral artery territory, or an altered state of consciousness. The quality of evidence for this recommendation is listed as low. Dr. Aburama, how are we to interpret these are these strict indications despite the low level of evidence? And does this represent your clinical practice? That's an excellent point. The, as you suggested, the evidence is not as strong as the non-stroke patients. However, we're putting the evidence for these type of patients who have ranking scale equal or above three or altered consciousness or anything of that nature to be if they undergo an intervention, whether stenting or an operation, the outcome is absolutely has been more of negative than positive. Majority of them really do not do good at all simply because whether brain hemorrhage or they deteriorate for other reasons. However, we also recommend these patients is to be closely followed and re-evaluated within their recovery. Let us say within two, three weeks, the ranking scale dropped to below three, their alternate consciousness became reversed, or the area of infarct is no larger than 30% of the hemisphere is being affected. If that's the case, then you could change your recommendation and do intervention. But in the beginning, if they belong to these criteria, we feel is still, when you compare the pros and cons, we still do not recommend any intervention for these type of patients. Dr. Rantner, what is the ESVS's position on the contraindications for the revascularization of acute stroke patients? 
Recommendation 46 of the ESVS guidelines, I had a look at them when preparing for this podcast, contains exactly the same limitations as mentioned in the SVS guidelines. And in my mind, as mentioned by Dr. Aburama, it makes absolutely sense to critically indicate revascularization in these patients. It's all about stroke prevention, and it's all about providing good quality of life and thinking about what the patient has to lose. So if there is nothing to lose, then why do we put him at the risk of another intervention, irrespective of surgery or stenting? So if revascularization has been indicated in the acute setting, both guidelines have also updated their recommendations as to the optimal timing of the procedure. However, they do seem to differ somewhat. In cases of minor stroke or TIA, the ESVS recommends carotid endarterectomy as soon as possible, regardless of stenosis grade, while the SVS recommends carotid endarterectomy as well, but after a waiting time of 48 hours and with a continued stenosis cutoff of 50%. Dr. Randner Aburama, can you comment on these updates and discrepancies? So in my mind, timing of treatment was a matter of great debate over the, let's say, the last 20 years. At some point, the arbitrary cutoff of two weeks showed up after subgroup analysis in Nasser and ECST. We realized that carotid endarterectomy carries an equivalent stroke and death risk done before two weeks and thereafter. It is unclear, however, which time interval within the early period is most optimal to prevent stroke recurrence and in Pernodland to minimize the risk of paraprocedural stroke. So there is still a lack of high-quality evidence and standardized definitions for what constitutes an early or urgent carotid intervention and what was measured. Do we count for the qualifying or for the last neurological event? So there might be also discrepancies in publications. And with this knowledge, there was some concerns about a higher risk of perioperative strokes within the first 48 hours, but literature is still controversial. Therefore, the SVS decided to stick to the 2017 wording to recommend crotodendotrectomy in neurologically stable patients as soon as possible, but preferably within two weeks. Actually, we're almost, believe it or not, we have more in common this than being somewhat different. But let me clarify our position again. It depends, since you wrote the question, you raised the question of TIAs, minor stroke or a stroke, there are different scenarios. If it's TIA, as soon as possible, mean a day, a two, a three, a four, it depends, are you convinced the TIA is carotid related, which means you make sure that it's not cardiac related, it's not any intracranial brain lesions related. It's not if a younger generation is not hypercoagulous state. And is, so that might take a day or two or three. But once you exclude that reasoning, then you could operate. Therefore, we said within 14 days, but most of the time you will end by not operating in the first day or two because of the reason I just mentioned. However, if it's crescendo TIA, this one ought to be done as urgent as possible. That's totally different scenario. If it's stroke in evolution, that urgent and so forth. If it's stable stroke, these are the one which we found as Dr. Ratner suggested, 
there is Professor Naylor and maybe a few people who suggest doing that surgery in the first 48 hours have a stroke rate of two to a half percent. However, American registry, Swedish registry, German registry, large center studies showed the stroke rate no less than four, five percent. If you do it in the first 24 hours, 48 hours, but it's definitely much, much less if you go beyond the 48 hours as long as done within two weeks. And that explains why our guidelines give you that gap. And I think, as I suggested, if you read the European, it's almost somewhat similar to our guidelines. The ESVS guidelines go on to specify that if the patient has undergone thrombolysis because of acute carotid thrombosis with an underlying stenosis, that a, quote, delay of six days after lysis completion should be considered before performing carotid endarterectomy to maintain 30-day death or stroke rates within the 6% recommended threshold. Dr. Ratner, may I ask why there is a delay of six days? So the evidence for this recommendation comes from large registry analyses. First of all, it seems worth mentioning that both treatment techniques are associated with significantly higher per-procedural complication rates following thrombolysis. The risk of intracerebral hemorrhage and per-procedural stroke goes down to the accepted 6%, irrespective of the treatment technique, after days 6 and 7 after finishing thrombolysis. This was very recently shown in an updated meta-analysis of a friend of mine, Kakus, in the context of this guideline update. So this is where our recommendation comes from. In the need of early revascularization after thrombolysis, for example, due to restrokes from these carotid stenosis, an explicit blood pressure control seems mandatory to keep the cerebral bleeding risk as low as possible for these patients. Dr. Aburama, what is the SVS's stance on delayed surgical intervention after thrombolysis, and how is this challenged approach in your clinical practice? I actually, you are similar to Dr. Ratner's and European, except we did not include this except in the implementation guidelines for reasoning. I said in the past, we do not specify, say, six days. We say a few days for them to stabilize, not only minimize the risk of hemorrhage, but also to do anything else to stabilize pressure and everything else before we do an intervention. So the only thing really different between us, we did not specify the exact dates because we don't have solid evidence to tell us how many days you need to wait. Thank you for the overview and rich discussion of the symptomatic setting. Now we will shift our attention to asymptomatic carotid disease. When it comes to the management of asymptomatic carotid disease, it seems that surgical indications are becoming increasingly scrutinized and questioned. Dr. Ratner, why is this? It is certainly not only surgery that is more and more questioned. It is revascularization of any kind. Nowadays, best medical treatment significantly reduces the stroke risk in the natural course. We are meanwhile talking about stroke incidences of 0.3 to 1% per year, TIA rates of only 1.5 to 2% per year. So carotid endotrectomy and carotid ultrasenting need to be really safe to offer an asymptomatic patient any benefit. Therefore, patient's election for so far asymptomatic stenosis seems crucial and we definitely need to have a closer look at 
plug compositions, stenosis progression, silent pain infarcts, and cerebrovascular reserve. These are just some parameters that might help to identify the patient at risk for a stroke with best medical treatment only and are again listed in the updated ESVS guidelines. Dr. Raburama, what's your opinion on this? Would it be fair to say that the SVS guidelines lean comparably more to continuing to allow or rather recommend surgery than the ESVS guidelines do? That is absolutely correct. First, let me start by agree with Dr. Ratner's and their recommendations, but the rationale for the SVS keeping it literally the same with little modification, because you go back to question number one in our guidelines. Would endartrectomy superior or equivalent to best medical therapy? And we have a heck of a time trying to really come out with a recommendation on this one. Why? Because believe it or not, there is no randomized control trial comparing best medical therapy of today to carotid endartectomy or carotid scenting, except the old ACAS, which is the American, and the old ACST, which is European, whether AST1 or AST2. They comparing best medical therapy these days to endartectomy these days. And that's the reason, if you noticed, we did two little changes in our recommendation in question number one. One, we raised the stenosis from 60 to above 70, and I'm going to tell you why. And two, we downgraded instead of 1A on the 2011 guidelines into 1B. Why? Because we don't know what is the best status of best medical therapy of today. And we're hoping Crest 2 will give us the answer, which I'm hoping in the next year or two, because I look into the best medical therapy of today versus endartrectomy in one arm or best medical therapy of today versus carotid stenting on the other arm. And I was told initial data might show up next year, but definitely before the next two years. Therefore, we downgraded from 1A to 1B. And why 70%? For two reasons. Number one, because almost every respected vascular laboratory in America, they follow grading of stenosis on duplex below 50, 50 to 70, and above 70. We no longer grade for above 60. And because many surgeons operate based on ultrasound, Therefore, we raise it to 70%, not to 60%. The second reason is Howard Etal, which I'm sure Professor Ratner is aware of. The systemic review of Howard Etal published in neurology a little bit over one year ago showed when it get to be 70% and above, the stroke rate is definitely much, much significantly higher than if it's below 70%. And that's the reason we put a 1B, but we could not put 1E because it was not randomized style, even if it was systemic review. And I hope that answered your question. Thank you, yes. Compared to previous guidelines, there are some discrepancies and changes regarding the grade of stenosis warranting intervention, as you mentioned, Dr. Aburama. The American guidelines state that all asymptomatic patients at low risk for surgery with greater than 70% stenosis should be considered for surgery. 
The European guidelines concur for all patients with greater than 80% stenosis, and for patients with greater than 60% stenosis if there are one or more clinical features making them high risk for stroke on best medical therapy. Dr. Rantner, what are the features that would define a higher risk of stroke? As already mentioned earlier, we meanwhile do have some morphological and clinical features that help to identify a more vulnerable situation in a so far clinically asymptomatic patient. A silent cerebral infarction is finally seen as a symptomatic status, and the stenosis should therefore be treated accordingly. Contralateral symptoms also indicate that the plug composition might be vulnerable. Plug volume, occlusency, and microembolization detected in TCD can also be of use in this context. And finally, the assessment of the circle of bilis and a good understanding of the cerebrovascular reserve could identify patients at risk for hemodynamic infarcts. All these parameters need to be taken into consideration to see the critical indication for revascularization in so far asymptomatic stenosis. Because literature showed that best medical treatment is good, but there are still patients developing symptoms out of a so far asymptomatic stenosis that were already under anti-aggregation and statin therapy. Wonderful, thank you. Dr. Aburama, what is the SVS's guideline stance on this? Do you think that the SVS will make similar distinctions in the future? Actually, looking to the two documents we had, the five-question document is clearly showed, as I suggested, anything above 70% who are relatively healthy, have five-year survival, and stroke rate not to exceed 3%. We do recommend in our tractomy, and in special cases, with a special expertise, a carotid stenting might be appropriate for the right candidate, and providers have a very impressive perioperative stroke rate during the procedure. That clearly in the clinical practice guideline. However, in the implementation guidelines, we go back to what Dr. Ratner suggested. Anything above 60%, which is the old estimate in the past, if they do have some feature similar to what Dr. Ratner suggested. The problem with this up to now, it's not common modality in America to have a software in the vascular laboratory identifying a plaque morphology, plaque hemorrhage, echolucent plaque. We do have some features to show us progression of disease, contralateral disease, infarct in the CQMR. We do have this, but still many of these features need a little bit better clarification. And we're hoping any future guidelines we might be able to include these and be more specific. Dr. Ratner, in patients who do not have high-risk features, why did the ESVS specify a threshold of 80% stenosis and not 70% like the SVS guidelines? So the recommendations for asymptomatic patients vary wildly between guidelines. As we already heard, the ESVS guidelines decided to start at 70%. The American Heart Association, for example, recommends surgery only in highly selected asymptomatic patients without going into any detail what highly selected should mean. The European Stroke Association, the ESO, advised carotid endotrectomy in patients with more than 60% stenosis considered to be at increased risk of stroke on best medical treatment alone. And then they mentioned the ESVS parameters, as mentioned earlier. 
So the ESBS guideline contains the recommendation to treat asymptomatic patients with 60 to 99 ICS stenosis and a life expectancy of at least five years, given a peri-procedural complication rate of below 3%. There was a recent publication from Howard that indicated that a 80 to 99% stenosis might be a high-risk feature per se, but the ESVS guideline group decided after intensive discussion, there were no consensus about including that or not in the guideline group, to not include that fact as a risk factor per se with the so far available literature that might probably change in the future. Maybe Dr. Ratner will educate me. It was not clear to me for the 80% in European, was it based on the ECST estimation of stenosis or based on the NASET? The reason I'm telling you that because an 80% based on the ECST is equivalent to almost 60% based on the NASET, which is the American measurement. So I'm curious whether that was the difference. I was curious, Dr. Ratner. So the Europeans also stick to NASET criteria. So the easiest is completely ruled out. No. And the discussion about the Howard paper was really very extensive and we did not come to a consensus. But the data presented in this review is quite controversial. And so after big discussion in the group, that if you need to rule out a relevant number of patients from randomized controlled trials to only get the significance per se, we decided not to include that in the guideline at this point. Thank you. Now let's talk about the accepted death stroke rates. The SVS guidelines state that, and I quote, carotid endarterectomy is recommended for patients aged below 80 years as long as the expected combined stroke and mortality rate for the individual surgeon was not above 3%. Dr. Ratner, the ESVS deadlines have dedicated a whole chapter, 3.9, to questioning or challenging this recommendation. Can you tell us why this was necessary and whether any change has or will come out of it? So guidelines since the late 1990s advise that carotid and naltrectomy should be performed with a 30-day stroke and death rate of below 3% in asymptomatic patients and pay attention 30-day risk. With the decreasing stroke rates in the natural course, this demand was more and more questioned. And some recently published guidelines like the ESO and the German-speaking S3 guidelines now suggest and ask to provide in-hospital stroke and death rate of below 2%. We, however, think that this does not necessarily mean that the 30-day threshold is reduced below 3%, since RCTs suggest that about a quarter of perioperative strokes and deaths occur after the eighth postoperative day, which effectively would mean that the 3% 30-day stroke and death rate continues to be retained with this question. Therefore, we left the recommendation for below 3% in 30 days unchanged and did not for the in-hospital complication rate. Dr. Aburama, what role does carotid artery stenting, transfemoral or transcarotid, have in the treatment of asymptomatic patients according to the current SCS guidelines? That also was somewhat very critical item, which we ended by extensively covering it in the implementation document. Incidentally, once we put these guidelines, 
we got almost over a hundred plus member of the SVS objecting why the TCAR was not included in the five questions, which is the main document of the SVS, which I understand where they're coming from, because of which we modified the implementation document very thoroughly to indicate when do you do CA, when do you do transfemoral carotid stenting, when do you do transcarotid stenting. And it's clearly, there is a nice tabulation telling you which patients are high risk for CA, which patients are high risk for transfemoral, and which patients are high risk for transcarotid stenting. And if you compare data so far, from the TCAR registry and large number from the SVSDQI, it's shown in the last two, three years, TCAR has a preoperative stroke and or death, literally similar to endartrectomy, but half of the transfemoral carotid stenting. So to make, to answer your question, each population might be fitting better for one of these procedures. For example, specifically TCAR, that's for my Caribbean colleague, you have to have a good anatomy, means a common carotid artery diameter of six millimeter or more, a depth between the skin and the common carotid where you access is less than four cm, so it will not be too deep to put your sheet, a length between the clavicle and the bifurcation of at least five centimeter and above, a carotid lesion not heavy calcified, not too long. If you have all that, which means TCAR is not the right answer. On the other side, transfemoral, if the arch is impressively calcified, heavy burden of plaque, the lesion, when you cross it, heavy calcified lesions and tortuous artery, that's not good candidate for transfemoral stenting. Same thing with the transcarotid endartrectomy. So to answer your question, there are now set of criteria which make the patient good for transfemoral, good for transcarotid, or good for CA. And that's how we left the implementation document. Dr. Rantner, is there a consensus on this topic? Do the ESVS guidelines, while framed differently, make similar analyses and recommendations as the American ones? As already mentioned, TCAR does definitely not play a crucial role in Europe due to limited availabilities. Despite that, the ESVS update does not have new recommendations compared to the 2017 version, irrespective of including ACSD2 results in the guideline update. So the ACSD2 revealed no outcome difference between carotid artery stenting and carotid endarterectomy in more than 3,600 asymptomatic patients with, however, relatively high paraprocedural stroke and death rates in both treatment groups. So we are here comparing 4% stroke and deaths in the carotid endarterectomy arm and even 5.2% of strokes and death in the carotid artery stenting group. So this is why the indication for revascularization in asymptomatic patients, irrespective of the technique, no matter if with transfemoral cause with TCAR or endarectomy, needs to be very strict nowadays. Thank you. Age is currently a hot topic. 
and with an aging global population, understandably so. Dr. Abrama, the SVS guidelines specify that the recommendation for surgically treating asymptomatic carotid disease is applicable to patients younger than 80 years of age. How are we to interpret this point and what is your personal opinion? Actually, this is in the, again, five question of the clinical practice guidelines. But if you go to the implementation guidelines, we were somewhat a little bit more liberal by indicating not only the age of an 80, anybody who is relatively healthy with life expectancy of preferably five years and above, based on all the evaluation of his cardiopulmonary status and so forth, which means we do not strictly saying do not do any intervention in patients above the age of 80 if they are specifically really healthy. So we don't look only in the chronological age, but we look to physiological age. My own experience, I would say maybe 10% of my practice are intervention for anybody above the age of 80 if they are fit and healthy. And I promise you this is probably the intervention all over the United States. Dr. Ratner, what does the ESVS guidelines say about age and what is your personal opinion? As already mentioned, age is of more and more relevance, not only in carotid disease, but all over vascular medicine. The ESVS guidelines did not fix a cut of age for revascularization, probably also for that reason. But we mentioned a minimum life expectancy of five years for asymptomatic patients when thinking about carotid endarterectomy, carotid artery sensing. Though it is certainly difficult to assess the life expectancy reliably, and age does in my mind not lie, I think this is very crucial if you think of a prophylactic revascularization in a patient aged 80 years or older. Thank you. So just interestingly, you also mentioned a five-year life expectancy. That's just what Dr. Aborama said as well, isn't there? So there seems to be quite some consensus that five-year life expectancy is acceptable to take patients that are asymptomatic. Okay, so finally, there is conflicting evidence regarding the effect of carotid artery revascularization on cognitive impairment. What is the position of the guidelines on this issue? I think both European and American almost share the same because there's no strong, clear evidence to tell you whether carotid disease intervention will improve cognition. There are data to show that many of the asymptomatic carotid stenosis patients do have some type of impairment of cognition, but whether we make them better or not is not clear. And I'm sure Pradeep Alpar has seen this, but I don't know about you, Lawrence, or Erza, if you read the tutorial at the JVS this past month from Professor Naylor, it touched that issue in the last paragraph. He's telling us, look, Crest 2 is going to address everything. Crest 2 actually have an arm in the study looking to cognitive impairment. So I'm hoping we have an answer. But at this stage, we do not do the intervention to improve cognitive function. That's absolutely also that goes along with the recommendations in the ESVS guidelines. So the evidence is slow. And from my personal point of view, looking at this was probably also the opportunity to find another reason to revascularize asymptomatic patients. So the stroke risk is getting so low, we probably would also need some other arguments to take people for carotid endarterectomy or carotid artery sending. But 
this is probably just a personal opinion because the science on cognitive impairment was never as vivid as it is nowadays. Thank you. We are reaching the end of our podcast. As we conclude, I would like to ask you both what you think are the most important discrepancies between the two guidelines and have we missed any important differences? So in, in my mind, there are no relevant differences between the SVS and the SVS guidelines. Only some minor variations in definitions, but no relevant contradictory recommendations. Some variabilities are given due to differences in Medicare systems and available techniques and daily routine like TCAR, or as Professor Abuama said, the ultrasound skills or techniques to assess the plaque composition. But in my mind, it's quite similar and fine. I agree with that. And let me emphasize on the three items which I'd like to see before I disappear from the corrupted circles in the next several years. One, TCAR. There is some movement where we might be able to participate as randomized trial for transcarotid stenting because this is probably the major negativism, not only from Europe, but also from United States, from some authors who feel we're really pushing for TCAR based on registry data. We're hoping maybe we could get the answer by conducting a randomized trial. However, if that's not going to be done because it's not practical, I'm hoping the TCAR surveillance project supervised and run by the Society of Vascular Surgery through the TCAR surveillance project of the SVS VQI will give us answers in five years because the government gave it the green light to be applied to standard risk patient. And it started a year ago and we are participating with that project which called Roster 3 Registry. And let's hope in four or five years we have an answer, but a randomized trial will give us even a better and better answer. And two, as you suggested, Professor Ratner, is the carotid plaque morphology. I like to see a software available in every vascular laboratory where we know how vulnerable that plaque is. And finally, is the cognitive improvement, if there is an improvement. And I'm hoping the CRIS 2 will give me that answer. Other than that, I think we are doing very well in this regard. Thank you. So I think you've partly answered my next question in terms of looking for research that needs to be coming. For our researchers out there listening, I would like to ask you about the most important remaining gaps in the knowledge. Carotid surgery is a field with comparably a lot of research, even randomized controlled trials. What is missing? Where should we as researchers be concentrating our efforts? We again addressed unanswered questions in the 2023 version. And for example, one of them is to discuss uh, the 80 to 99% asymptomatic stenosis and better understand if this is really more risky than a, for example, 60 to 79% stenosis without any further features. Some questions concerning best medical treatment are also still unanswered. What is the effectiveness of low-dose rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus aspirin monotherapy, for example, in asymptomatic patients? And as discussed extensively, what is the position of TCAR? But this is also a problem in Europe 
as mentioned. After exploring the similarities and differences between these guidelines, do you think there is a need or place for a joint European and American set of guidelines in the future? Though I think it would be great and it would be good fun to, to do the guideline work together on a transatlantic base. I'm not sure if that will happen in the near future. As mentioned earlier, there are differences in hospital structures, in medical systems, best clinical practice and availability of technologies. And this also needs to be addressed irrespective of best randomized evidence. This needs to be addressed in a guideline to guide through daily routine for the clinical practitioners. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And simply because, as you suggested, there is a lot of cross borders in Europe. And of course, in America, it's much easier as one country and so forth. And literally one paying system that I think is so critical point is that I really believe it's worthwhile exploring where we see what is common between us and still leave whatever cannot be unified as a part of that document. We're not in agreement on this or this, but we're in agreement to this and this. So from the beginning, it might be nice to invite two, three, four people from our European colleague and let them participate in that issue. And if there are some differences, we put it aside and address it in a different section. I think it would be very ideal. Is it doable? I don't know, but I hope it can be done in the next few years. Thank you both so much for joining us today for this fascinating and clarifying discussion. We have greatly enjoyed it and learned a lot, and no doubt so have our listeners. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. It's a pleasure talking to you also, and I'm very pleased to be part of this podcast. Thank you very much. I would also like to thank both of you Laurence and Ezra for organizing this interesting podcast and Professor Aboramo for taking the time to get in touch and discuss the similarities and differences between the United States and the ESV's carotid opinions. And it has been a pleasure co-hosting this podcast with my American colleague Ezra Schwartz. This is the beginning of a long and fruitful friendship. Thank you out there for listening and look out for more ESVS audible bleeding transatlantic podcasts coming up soon. Before we go, I would like to remind you that you can find all ESVS podcasts open access in Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, the Vascular Forum webpage, and the ESVS e-library. Thank you to our guests and to my co-hosts, Laurence Bertrand. And you can find the Audible Bleeding podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Aburama and Dr. Rantner, please check out the show notes. We'll also be including any papers and resources referenced today. We wish you all a great day. Talk to you again soon. Goodbye.